All right, I want to welcome on my next guest. We've got longtime New York Jet, member of the Jets Ring of Honor, Jets broad, uh, radio broad, broadcaster, Marty Lyons. Marty, how's everything going? I'm doing well, Zach. How are you doing? I'm doing well. I'm doing well. I'm ready for this kind of pandemic to subside. It's it's very interesting walking into a grocery store with, I feel like, riot gear on with my mask and everything and the gloves, and it's it's wild. Well, when you think about what we're going through Absolutely. compared to what the nation went through and so many lives were lost, yeah. uh, it's the it's the best that we can do. Yes. And maybe it's the new norm if we can, you know, certainly we have flattened the curve here in New York, yeah. but we have to do more. Definitely. Definitely. Yeah, it's just, it's just, I see all these people not wearing masks and I'm like, where have you been for the past four months? It's, it's, it's yeah. You, you know what? You also realize you can't take life for granted how nope. special it is and how one day you can be normal and the next day, you know, you're in a lockdown and then you're watching TV and you see, so many different things happen, especially the elderly. Yeah. And I think I consider them the, the history of our nation because every time that you would talk to them, they always started off the conversation, I remember when. Yeah. And so for those students that were able, not able to have their graduation this year, uh, years from now, when they tell the story, they'll go, I remember in 2020 when I was supposed to graduate from high school or college and we had this uh, pandemic called coronavirus and they'll tell their story too yeah so is it is it a little bit more kind of calmer now in new york now than it was a couple of months ago it is it's calmer but um i think there's still that fear factor that goes on we're getting ready to start on phase three where oh, cool. you know you can go out to restaurants and you can eat outside and you know but the mask is somewhat mandatory oh, yeah. but you go out and you you see people walk in the street, and I guess it's a 50-50 now. Some people wear it, some people don't. And, um, you know, I, I'd rather be safe than sorry. Absolutely, 100%. So flipping over to, to football, so I have a couple questions for you. So I have a question. Um, what was your first interaction like with Bear Bryant? My first one was when I went up there for a visit. I was getting recruited out of Florida. And, uh, yeah, I went up there for an official visit. Uh, the two guys that were actually supposed to take me out after the game never showed up. So I ended up going to bed early, and then I met with Coach Bryant the next day. And Coach Bryant said, son, you know, we'd love to offer you a scholarship. If you're good enough to play, the opportunity will be here. And I felt that out of all the coaches that I had talked to at that level, he was the most honest. He said, hey, if you're good enough to play, the opportunity will be here. He didn't promise that you could start your freshman year. He didn't promise that you could play in four years he just said the opportunity was there and as a uh, high school player that had dreams of making it to the NFL uh, I felt that if I went to where the best went you would have the opportunity to play the best and you would challenge yourself and I also knew that I was about almost 700 miles away from home that once my mother and my brothers dropped me off, I was there. And the only way that I was leaving is if I quit. And quitting wasn't an option. So when, you, when, when they did drop you off, what was your first impression of the campus? Oh, the campus was huge. But, you know, I, I remember sitting outside on the curb watching those taillights of my mom's car <laughs> turn the corner. And you go, you know, had tears running down your face and you go, okay, you know, now it's time to go in and 
first person I met there was Willie Meadows. He was the equipment manager, and he, he gives you a little basket. And he says, son, here, here's your socks, your jocks, your shirt. Don't lose any of it, because if you do, you won't get it replaced. If you don't put it in, it doesn't get washed. That's and he wild. said, and, and now the freshman locker uh, locker room is down there. And he pointed, and he went down there, and there was a locker that had your name and your number on it. And that's when I found out that uh, I was going to have number 93. And then I saw that um, Bear Bryant spoke to the freshman class, and he told you guys something? Yeah, well, you know, he always addressed the freshman class when they came in. And, you know, I was a uh, All-State three athlete three-sport athlete in high school football, basketball, and baseball. But you would look next to you, and this guy was All-State in football, basketball, <laughs> baseball, track. So Coach Bryant got the, the pick of the nation best players, and I was just fortunate that uh, he gave me that opportunity. And I still remember when he came in there, he moved kind of slowly. And he said, welcome to the University of Alabama. There's four things I want you to accomplish while you're here. Number one, uh, always be proud of your family. Number two, always be proud of your religion. Number three, get an education. And number four, if we have time, let's try to win some football games. So being 18 years old, 700 miles away from home, you, you, know, you kind of scratch your head and you go, wow. You know, I decided to play at the University of Alabama for Coach Bryant. But here was the guy that took the core values of life and put football forward. And, you know, you fast forward, we only lost uh, six games in four years. We That's won three SEC titles. We won a national title. But I think what Coach Bryant did most of all is he prepared his players for the game of life. He prepared us that when the game was over, you could still be successful in your community, in your church in your marriage, and uh, he thought more about that than he did the game of football. He just took those qualities and instilled them among his players. Yeah, I'm ready to run for a brick wall for Bear Bryant after hearing that. <laughs> well, <laughs> first of all, Zach, you would understand if you played for him, you know, our reference has always been and always will be Coach Bryant. Oh. I, don't, I don't think any former players – that have ever played with him or spent time with him, ever used that term Bear Bryant. Interesting. He may be known as that in the community uh, of sports, but for those of us that played for him, it's always Coach Bryant. Interesting. And I have a question. What was your first impression of Ozzie Newsom? My first impression of Ozzie Newsom is just he's just a quality person. I got to know him. He was one year in front of me at the University of Alabama. We became good friends. And uh, he was the number one draft choice for the Cleveland Browns. He's in the Hall of Fame. He's in the College Football Hall of Fame. He's just one of those quality people that you enjoy being around. Every time that you're around him, you can learn something new, not just about yourself, not just about him, but uh, about the world, about the world of sports and, and everything that goes on. He's just, uh, you know, one of those people that, you know, you're – you're very fortunate to be able to call a friend. That's awesome. That's awesome. And then, so um, that 78 season, did you, what, what clicked for you guys that you guys were able to kind of just uh, go atop everyone else? Well, I think the 78 season was just a carryover from the 77 season. We were 11 and one and we actually beat uh, Ohio state in the sugar bowl. And we felt that that year we should have been the national champs 
but uh, what happened was you had Notre Dame. They were number five in the nation going into the bowl games. They ended up beating Texas, who had Earl Campbell, and they jumped from five to first. So we were kind of upset with that, but we had the, the core players coming back. We didn't have any the graduating senior class. We were mostly a, a junior class that came in together. And, uh, you know, we lost early in the year. We lost to USC. But we had plenty of time to regroup. And then I think it was a relationship that Coach Bryan had with Joe Paterno from Penn State that actually set up that one-two uh, in the Sugar Bowl that year. Man, I'd love to be in the room with the two of them. That just imagine just all the conversations. But that's wild. Um, and then, at any what point during that year were you kind of focused on the NFL? I don't think I focused on the NFL at all. I think it was more important for me just to go out there and perform every week. Uh, we had a, a bunch of core players like Rich Wingo, Barry Krause, Murray Lake, Jeff Rutledge, Dwight Stevenson, right. Tony Nathan. That uh, we would go out and compete against one another every single day to push each other to the max. Um, and at the end of the day, you know, whether you won or you lost, you got better. Yeah. And I think that we were a very close unit. We, again, we lost early and then we regrouped and, you know, and then we started to play better football. And when you got, you know, you had Coach Bryant preparing us, but you still had to go out there and execute. And one thing that Coach Bryan had, which uh, I, I think has been mentioned over and over again, he had a great supporting cast, great coaches. And, um, you know, to be able to play your last collegiate game and win the national championship and you hang the helmet up and you hang the uniform up and you go, wow, the four years of college went by fast. I'm very thankful for my teammates down there, very thankful thankful for the coaches but more importantly I'm thankful for the fans you got to remember in 1975 I came from out of state and uh, you know I came in as a stranger but left as a family member after we won the national championship were they kind of were they more kind of homey back then did they have to get accustomed to you a little bit a little bit well I don't know if they had to get accustomed to me more I had to get accustomed <laughs> to the lifestyle of the south you know and uh, they loved their football, and they loved their players, and um, they were very supportive. I don't ever remember going to a game, and even if we lost, and we only lost six games, um, ever getting booed, you know. They were always there. They were filling the stadium. They were following us wherever we went. We had a, you know, if we played out at, at USC, we had our contingent of fans that would travel with us. Wow. That's what, and it was, was the fan base as big then as it is now? Well, I don't know if it was as big then as it is now, uh, but it is special to the players. That's awesome. You know, it's not the number of fans that travel, it's the quality of fans. Definitely. And it, what, so what was your, your, your draft process like? Well, you, back then we didn't have the combine. So after, after my, uh, after the Sugar Bowl, I went out and I played in the East-West Shrine game, and then I went down and played in the uh, Senior Bowl in Mobile. And then you had all these NFL teams that that were expressing interest in you. So you had to fly to, like, New York to take a physical. 
fly to Buffalo, take a physical, go to Tampa Bay, take a physical. So all the individual teams were, if they had an interest in you, they were bringing you in. So um, there was no ESPN coverage of the, of the draft, so I didn't go anywhere. Uh, I thought I had a chance of, of being a uh, first-round draft choice. And I actually got a call from my brother, Jim, who told me, hey, you were just drafted in the first round by the wow. Jets. And then the Jets called and said, we're drafted. We just drafted you in the first round. Uh, our mini camp is going to be next week. We're going to make arrangements to fly you up. How did he find out before you? I guess he was probably listening to the radio or listening to some sort of, you know, the NFL draft being streamed. I don't even know how. <laughs> but my brother called me first. That's wild. And if, if the NFL never called and you went up there and like, hey, we didn't, we didn't take you, it would have been an interesting no. situation. <laughs> no, and to be honest with you, I didn't – I came up, I took the physical with the Jets, but I thought I was going to go to some place like Cleveland. Huh. But when we played in the All-Star game in, that, uh, in the Senior Bowl, the New York Jets were actually the coaching staff that coached the North. Okay. I played on the South. And the coaching staff for the South were the New Orleans Saints. So I was the MVP for the South. And actually, Mark Gasno, who was on the North team, he was the MVP for the North. Oh, so that's, so how, the they, Jets, that's how they figured it out. So the Jets <laughs> took, took myself and Mark in the first and second round. Had you ever heard his name before, before that, uh, that game? No. You know, and I, I really – we didn't get to spend much time down there because he was on the opposing team. And when we came up to New York for the mini camp, I got to know him because oh, we cool. roomed together. That's awesome. And so what, what was that mini camp and that just kind of that, that first off season like? Well, the first mini camp, I remember we took a picture with Walt Michaels and he had Mark on one side and I was on the other. And he looked at us and he said, the name of the game is get to the quarterback. And be honest with you, Zach, I think that might have been the only thing he said to me the whole entire working <laughs> year. You know, it was in a totally different environment. The interacting with the coaches were on first-name basis. You weren't, you know, you didn't go Coach Michaels. You said, hey, Walt. And we talked. And it was now a business. You were now getting a paycheck to play the game. It was your livelihood. Um, and it didn't. The livelihood of other players and the coaches depended on how you perform. You know, it's easier to get rid of coaches than it is players. Yeah. And as a result, you know, uh, I saw – I've been with the Jets now 42 years. I've seen a lot of coaches, yeah. let's say, get fired or get let go one way or the other. There's that old saying there's three types of coaches in the NFL. Those that have been fired, those that will be fired, you know, goes on and on because eventually it's going to happen to everybody was there was there an adjustment period for you getting accustomed to the pro game oh there was a big adjustment because i came in the jets went from a three three four to a four three oh, wow. meaning that i got a you know they moved myself into a starting position i was underweight i was playing outside where i should have been playing inside and the the first year was a learning experience but I was, I was very fortunate that uh, I developed a friendship with Joe Klecko, and he took me underneath his wing and said, hey, you know, you've got to get stronger. and You don't leave the complex until I leave the complex. You don't 
lift by yourself, you lift with me. And, and he was exactly right. And that's why, you know, you talk about 42 years later, we still have the friendship that we do. That's awesome. That's so cool. And then, so at what point did you guys realize, when, how did the, the, the SAC exchange come into existence? You know, exactly. It just happened. You know, I think the big adjustment was when Mark came in. He, you know, Mark started his, I think, his second year in the league after they traded away Lawrence Pillars. Mark had a, a starting position. They moved me inside to a tackle position, Joe outside. So now you had two guys rushing the quarterback from the outside, both with outstanding speed and outstanding strength. Name of the football is just get you know, you got to have more numbers than the opposing team. But you're, we're only rushing four. They have five offensive linemen. And you got a running back. If they're going to double team one guy, they can't double team the other. And we had two of the best. And one should be in the Hall of Fame, which is Joe Klecko. And, uh, you know, we were fortunate. We had Mark. We had Joe. Myself and Abdul, we knew what we were supposed to do. But the back seven were – outstanding too you had guys like Kenny Shroy playing in the safety position you had Lance Mel you had Greg Buttle you had Bobby Jackson so while a lot of the credit goes to the went to the front four you know that was a good solid defensive unit that everybody should get credit for was was a strong D-line as as instrumental then? Was it is that I'm trying to think of the words. It was it as widely known that okay, we have to have a it starts at the front back then as it is now because I feel like now edge edge rusher is the third most uh, third most important position in football. Well, you have to find a way to get to the quarterback without yeah. blitzing. Every yeah. time that you blitz, you're taking a guy out of coverage. Yeah. So we were fortunate that the four of us could figure it out how to get to the quarterback where you didn't have to blitz that much. Uh, I think the game, you know, it was uh, – today's football is going back to what it used to be yeah. somewhat because you look at the Jets now, what they're trying to do is build their offensive line because yeah. Sam Darnold can be successful, yeah. but you have to give him time. Yeah. If he's on his back or if he's getting hit, it's hard to throw, it's hard to be productive, it's hard to stay healthy. On the defensive side of the ball – you know, you saw Jamal Adams last year have eight and a half sacks, I think, Incredible. because you had a defense coordinator in Greg Williams that was bringing him up into the box. He was taking a chance, you know, in coverage, saying, all right, I'm going to put this guy. He has great athletic ability. I'll put him up there where he's in space, meaning nobody's going to block him, but he's yeah. got to come off the edge. And Jamal did a great job last year. Absolutely. And then so – when how, how cool was it you guys when you guys actually went to the stock exchange to ring the bell? Oh, it was great. I I remember when we pulled up. I, I before that we were doing autograph sessions as the sack exchange. That's awesome. Joe and I would go and we'd pull up and there'd be a line around the mall. We I'd go, Joe, that can't be for us. And he would say, No, it's not for us. There's a new movie coming out. But sure enough, it was for us. Wow. And then when we went down to the exchange. Um, you know, and the streets were packed and we went on to the floor and it was something all new. It was an experience, new experience for me, but something that when you look back and you reflect on it, you look at yourself and realize how fortunate you were to be surrounded by good people, good teammates, 
and how much the New York Jets fans really did appreciate what we accomplished. Uh, and they gave us that nickname, the Sack Exchange. That's so cool. And so I, I understand that you, you were very interested in doing uh, your charitable efforts early on in your career. What was that, Zach? Um, your, your charitable efforts, you were, you were doing it while what, what, well, I, I was doing it, and then in 1982, uh, my oldest son was born on March 4th, and then my dad suddenly died of a heart attack uh-huh. on March 8th, and then a little boy that I was a big brother to died of leukemia on uh-huh. March 10th, and he was only five and a half years old. And, you know, I was 25 years old. I struggled to find an answer. And days went to weeks and weeks went to month. And then I realized that, you know, there was something that Coach Bryant told me when I went in to thank him in 1979 for the opportunity to play. He said, uh, a winner in the game of life is the person that gives of, them, gives of themselves so other people can grow. And it was the first time that I re- had remembered that saying since the day he told it to me. And I said, well, here's the platform that, God had given, use your God-given tools, use the platform to make a difference for terminally ill children. So I reached out to Kenny Shroy and I said, hey, what do you think? I said, I'd like to start this foundation for terminally ill children, take their greatest wish in life, make it become a reality. I need your help. And he said, hey, I'm in. And then the Jets said, hey, we're in. But still, Zach, we had no money. So we had to start raising money. I started doing speaking engagements, and instead of taking the honorarium, I donated it back to the foundation. And now, you know, proud to say 38 years later, we operate in 10 states. We've helped over 8,000 families, and we've raised over $35 million. That's incredible. That's Uh, amazing. That's just the generosity of people out there in the community that believe and make a difference, that believed in my cause and said, hey, we want to be a part of it. Because nobody accomplishes anything by themselves, and you need a team. And I took six people sitting around the table, and uh, they helped me create a dream, and we've been able to help these kids. And unfortunately, for a lot of these kids, we're dealing against time. Yeah. And what we try to do is preserve that time and create memories for them and more importantly, create memories for the families. Because 60% of the kids we work with won't see the age of 18. And it really makes you realize how fortunate you are, how blessed you are. But it also makes you realize how we can all make a difference. You don't have to be a professional athlete to make a difference. You just have to care. Yeah. Um, there's so many different causes out there now that we're seeing that people have to get behind because it's the right thing to do. And as somebody told me the other day, they said, you know what, there's going to come a point in every man's life where you have to have that act of courage to step out of sight of your comfort zone to say, Hey, I want to make a difference. I want to be the voice. I want to lead by example. I want people to know that I am more than a football player. And I made that decision early on that I did not want the game of football to define who I was or the impact that I was going to be able to have. That's awesome. That's so cool. And then so back then, if I would have told you 38 years from now, this is all the foundation would accomplish, what would you have said? I would say that 
you know, being that the first president that I had was a guy named Bill Gibney, and he said, I'll help you underneath, I'll help you start this foundation with one condition. And I said, what's that? And he goes, it's not a one and done. You're not no. just going to do it because you play football. You're going to do it because it's the right thing to do. Yeah. And should look back and realize how many people have gotten involved in in 10 different states to say, hey, you know what? We want to take your foundation and operate it like it's our foundation, like we're putting our name on it, and we're going to work just as hard as you do because we see the difference that it's making. And for that, I'm grateful. I mean, I would have never been able to, to get here I also look back and you kind of reflect on, on the kids that that you did help and you realize that they were only here for a short period of time. But each one of them had their own little message. Each one kind of knew why they were here. They found their identity and they found their purpose way before I found mine. You know, so you talk about you know, a five-year-old boy or, you know, you're sitting there talking to, to him, and he says, you know what, I know everything's going to be all right. I'm going to go to heaven. So he reiterates the value of faith, which now you turn back the clock. And remember, that's what Coach Bryant said. His second core value is always be proud of your religion. So everything seemed to come back into play. Everything seemed to come back into place on everything that Coach Bryant had said. But now I had kids that were dying saying, hey, if you have faith, what do you fear? They said, faith is believing in something you can't see. And if you, you have enough of it, in death, you'll be rewarded by seeing everything you believe in. So I always tell people that it, it's so important to listen. Listen to our children. Listen to them and understand that just maybe they can educate us a little bit more than we can educate them. Absolutely. Well, that's incredible. It's, just, it's awesome. You guys are doing all this great work. It's fantastic. And I'll put the link and everything. And, and when I, when I post this uh, soon and just so everybody can see it, it's, it's fantastic. Thank you so much for doing it. It's incredible work you guys are doing. That's so cool. And then, so, so going back to, to foot football. So then you, then you did win the man of the, the NFL man of the year award in 84. Was that, is that even on your radar at all? Well, it wasn't, in, it wasn't on my radar because it was never something that, you know, I don't, I, it was never a goal. I didn't, I didn't start the foundation so I could be recognized. You know, the first recipient we had, his father told me when his son passed away, he said, don't do this because you want to read about it in the newspaper. Do it because you believe that, that it's the right thing to do. And when I got named the NFL Man of the Year in 1984, even though that award had my name on it, I just represented all the children from the foundation, all those children that had come through the door to show me that they had the courage to fight through their illness, and some survived. So they're a reminder to me that, you know what, anything in life is possible as long as you never quit on yourself. And for those that passed away, that lost their fight to cancer or, or other disease, their name should have been on the trophy because 
they were an example of, of truly what life was meant. They, they, uh, they didn't give up on themselves. They just couldn't fight their disease. So what it did was it, it brought recognition to those individuals. So in 1984, uh, you know, I accepted that award, even though it had my name on it, on behalf of all the children. That's awesome. And then so I have a question. So throughout your entire tenure with the Jets, was there one moment that really stands out above the rest? Well, I think there's there's a lot of good moments, and there's always that one moment where you kind of, you know, haunt you. And, you know, uh, mine was in 1987 on a Monday night game against the Dolphins, and uh, Dan Marino threw an interception, and uh, I turned to make a block, and and when I hit uh, the player, I hit him high. He didn't see me coming, and he fell. He blew out his knee, and you know, to this day, it haunts me because it was one of my best friends from college. It was Dwight Stevenson, and I stayed there on the field with him. And uh, uh, you kind of relive that moment, and you kind of say, "Well, would it, if I was still playing today, would I have taken that that hit?" Uh, and you go, yeah, I, I might have taken the hit. I just would have hoped the results would have been different. So it, it does kind of haunt you. I've been friends with Dwight for, you know, 40 years. There's no hard feeling on his part. Uh, but it's just one of those moments where, you know, you find it very hard to forgive yourself, even though you don't believe that it was a dirty, cheap shot. It was part of the game. It, but uh, as a player, you never want to see anybody in their career, and you don't want to be the one that caused it. So, yeah, that, that, that's one memory that I wish I could let go, yeah. but I can't. Yeah. And, and I have a question. At what point did you realize that you were ready just to hang up your cleats and just kind of move on to your next step in life? Well, you know what? That, that decision wasn't made by me. It was made by the organization. You know, I was going into my, finished my, going into my 12th year, and I ended up tearing my bicep. So mm-hmm. they put me on injury reserve, which meant at that point, you know, my season's over. So I tried to get back in shape, and then I went in there, which would have been my 13th year with the Jets, and they go, hey, you know what, we're moving in a different direction. We're going to keep players that uh, may not be as good as you, but we have to get younger. And unfortunately, you know, we're going to either cut you or you can retire with class. And I knew I was going to stay up here in New York because of the foundation. And I had a great deal of respect uh, for the organization, my teammates, and in particular, Mr. Hess, the owner of the Jets. And I said at that time at uh, the press conference, I had too much respect for my teammates, the fans, and Mr. Hess to wear another color jersey. So I retired that day and thought about it. If the phone rang, would I have gone somewhere else to try to get in a year? Uh, maybe. You know, you always want to be wanted. Uh, unfortunately, the phone never rang. And, you know, maybe the Jets knew something that I didn't know because, you know, you, your body tells you you can do it, but your mind's kind of like second-guessing. Well, you know, what you've already had – you know, at that time, maybe six or seven operations. Maybe there's light at the end of the tunnel, and uh, there's more important things than the game of football, uh, which we're finding out in the year 2020. 
football and sports in general is a way to escape the reality of what's happening in the world. But, you know, it's taken a back seat for the last three or four months. And there's other priorities that are jumping in front of it. Absolutely. And then I have a question. How did you get into broadcasting? Was that ever an interest of yours? You know, that was a hit or miss job. That was one of these where you have an opportunity to do it. Um, I started off with cable vision doing college games and there wasn't a lot of money in it. It was more for the experience. It was more to keep yourself visible in the New York market, which would help the foundation. Um, I would do a game on, uh, you know, a Friday night or a Saturday. I'd sit with somebody on Monday and they would critique it. You had to have thick skin and they would go, well, I know what you were trying to say, but it didn't come across that way. And, and then I was very fortunate to host the Jet Journal in-house TV show for the New York Jets. And I worked with Al Troudwig, and he was just great. And then when the radio job came up, you know, I was fortunate. I had an opportunity <clears throat> to go in there, audition for it. When I got it, I talked to Al again. I said, Al, you know, you're in TV, you're in radio. What's the difference? And how should I, you know, present myself? And he said, when you do radio, you got to remember, it's like you're a painter. You have an open canvas. You know, pretend you're talking to a blind person. They can't see the action. you got to describe it. And he goes, you know what? Point out the little things. Make them understand exactly what you're saying so that they can picture it. And then I was fortunate, too, to get matched up with one of probably the most talented guys that I've ever been able to work with in Bob Wachusen. You know, he does the ESPN college games. He's so talented. And we got matched up, and we didn't know each other. I'd heard of him. I heard him on, you know, WFAN. And now we were a partner. And uh, it's amazing. We're going into our 19th year. We've seen each other's family grow together. And we've grown together to an amazing friendship. So, you know, when you're doing radio and uh, you have a partner, there's got to be a certain amount of chemistry. And there's got to be definitely a certain amount of uh, appreciation for the guy that you're working with. And like I said, I, I don't think that I could have asked for a better partner, a more professional partner. He's always prepared. He's always ready to go. And, you know, if I fall a little weak some days and he's right there to help me through it and I'm there to help him through it. That's awesome. And then what was it like getting um, inducted into the Ring of Honor? Well, again, the Ring of Honor, you know, um, it was one of those awards that, again, it, it had my name on it, but it had my teammates' yeah. name on it. It had all the guys uh, that I played college ball with. It had all the guys that I played high school with. It had George O'Brien's name on it. He was my high school football coach who saw more in me than I saw in myself, who actually at that time, in probably 1973, was writing letters to different colleges saying, hey, this kid could play. Meanwhile, I didn't even know whether I liked football. I had a love for baseball. And uh, then I started to get recruited. recruited. But, you know, to, to see your name go up there and to see your family, your coaches, and more importantly, you know, 
as I ended my speech, I said, my name, I, I, I thank the fans. And I said, my name will be your name forever in the ring of honor because the fans were the ones that supported me every single down, good games, bad games, good seasons, bad seasons. They were always there. And I wanted them to know beside how much I appreciated my teammates, the coaches, how much I appreciated them. And, uh, again, that's, that's been a, a stronghold of mine. And, you know, ever since I uh, started playing sports is to make sure that you appreciate. You're very humbled with the award, but you share it with the people that are responsible for it. Absolutely. And then you were talking about uh, Coach Brian's four pillars, and you've talked about family, faith, football. But then the fourth one was education. I understand you went back to school like nearly 30 years later to get your degree. Well, it actually took me 41 years to graduate. So, you know, it's kind of interesting when you talk to parents and they go, wow, my son's on his, he's on the five-year program. I go, that's okay. (laughs) That's okay. As long as he gets there. I said, but, you know, I go back to when I went in there to see Coach Bryant. Um, I had played in the two All-Star games. I was behind in school. I was behind in school because of my senior year. I put more effort in football than I did in the classroom. And I, I had to tell Coach Bryant I was dropping out of school, which is not a good thing to do. And Coach Bryant, he accepted it. I, I would think that he understood it, but he wasn't happy. So at the end of our conversation, uh, he stuck his hand out and said, Marty, please promise me one thing. One day you'll come back. He goes, you'll be very fortunate. You'll play a game you love. You'll build financial security for you and your family. He goes, but promise me one day you'll come back and get your education. You'll get your degree. I shook his hand. All right. 1983, he passed away on, on January 26th. There wasn't many people that I had ever expressed that story to, except I knew that the man that really probably meant the most, beside my father, beside George O'Brien, meant the most to me in my life. I made a commitment to him. I made a promise to him. So as many times as I tried to go back, there was always an excuse too busy, four kids at home, got this, got that, until finally I said, you know what, there's got to be a way. So I went down, I flew down to the University of Alabama. I met with the president, Dr. Witt. I told him what I wanted to do. He said, hey, we can work this thing out. You know, it's going to take a little bit longer than you may want, but we can get it done. And I looked at him, I said, you know, what's it going to take? Another year, another two years. So I don't graduate in 39 years. It's 41 years, <laughs> you know. And I met with an advisor and the advisor said, you know, are you coming back, you know, for your for your career so that you can make more money in your job? <laughs> you don't understand. One reason why I'm coming back is I made a promise. I got to fulfill that. That promise, you know, where, you know, where the old days is, it was always said, your handshake is your honor. Your handshake is your integrity. Well, that's what I gave to Coach Bryant. So, 
in December of 2016, I was able to, you know, graduate and get my degree. That's awesome. That's incredible. That's wild. That's awesome. And then so I have one last question for you. So when, when, when everything starts, uh, starts going back to normal, let's say when there's a vaccine out where everything's a lot safer just for everyday life to sort of resume, what's the first thing you're looking forward to doing? First thing I'm looking forward to doing? First thing I hope, not that I look forward to doing for myself, first thing that I hope is that people's attitudes will change. People will start respecting people for who they are. People will start understanding that uh, your life may be good, but other people's lives aren't. That uh, we're all in this world to make this world a little bit better for the next generation of kids and the next generation of athletes. And the only way that we can do that is to appreciate and value everybody for who they are not the color of their skin, but value them for the individuals they are and love an individual uh, without seeing color. Absolutely. You're just seeing, just seeing the people just coming together. While it is, there's a big divide. It does give you a sign that hope that the, the, the majority will outweigh the few. And I'm glad to see that. And I'm, I'm sorry it had to, was had to happen. It's had to happen, but it gives me hope for the future that we can put this all behind us and we can just kind of move forward. Well, you, you hope so, Zach, and uh, I think it's going to be your generation uh, of uh, individuals, you know, and the generation of your kids that are going to be able to change it. And you hope that it's not one of these, okay, it's, it, we're going to change it, and it only stays in place for a month, two months, three months, and then it gets back to where it was. You know what? We can't keep taking steps back. To, create, to correct the future. We got to correct the future by taking steps forward and by education. You know, during this whole period of time, the, the person that has probably educated me more than watching the news is my 26-year-old daughter. And, uh, okay, I'll be right with you. Uh, my 26-year-old daughter, she's a school teacher in Dallas. You know, she teaches at a minority school. You know, it's probably 70% black, 30% Hispanic, and she spends a good portion of her paycheck just to buy food so that when they do come to school, they get to eat. So she's living it. She's seeing it. She's involved in it. And she can continue to educate me because you know what? She's in the middle of it. And whether her opinion is right or wrong, I tell people you have to have an opinion. You know, the worst thing is, is when somebody asks you, Zach, you know, give me an opinion on this. And you go, well, whatever you think, you know, if I'm sitting on the other side of the table, it indicates to me that, First of all, Zach doesn't want to be a leader. Zach doesn't want to be responsible. And Zach doesn't have time to think. And then you may even say, boy, Zach is kind of like just, he's lazy. He just wants to, he just wants everybody to be happy with him. He doesn't want to, you know, rock the boat anymore. But you have to have an opinion. And your opinion is not always going to be agreed upon by the person on the other side of the aisle. But you have to, 
they have to respect your opinion and you have to respect their opinion, even if it's not something you agree with. Absolutely. And before you can totally disagree with it, maybe you should educate them on why you disagree with it. So if you can educate them on why you disagree with it, maybe it will swing. Maybe it will swing back to, you know what, Zach, you're right. I was wrong. And the first step in moving in the right direction is for all of us to admit that we have been wrong in life. You know, hold yourself accountable and make that first step an important step. It's, It's for you to realize that, yeah, we're all guilty in this. I'm guilty too. Absolutely. Absolutely. But this, this has been incredible. Thank you so much for, for chatting for your few minutes, telling your story. This has been awesome. I'm glad everybody's doing well, but this is, this has been awesome. Thank you so much for chatting. My pleasure, Zach. Anytime you want to do this, we can get together. Appreciate it. Appreciate it. Thank you so much. <laughs>